0: Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at infothedistrict.church? At All right, good, good. It's good to see you guys. Uh, I'll tell you what, if you have your Bibles, I want you to go ahead and open them. Uh, we're going to be in the Book of James today, and we're excited to start this new series. Uh, today as we walk through James and one of the reasons why we do this is because we value the Word of God. We value the Word of God. There, there is no idea, there is no opinion, there is no strategy, there is nothing that, that we as leaders can come up with that is going to provide for you what you need for your soul to be fed and for you to be sanctified and for you to grow in the gospel than for us to just simply preach the Word of God. And so that's why we value it so much, and that's why we also preach through books of the Bible. And so a lot of times people refer to that as being expository, and, uh, and that's what we are as a church. And so twice a year we go through books of the Bible. And so every fall we kick off as it follows our Uh, anniversary as a church. And so if you weren't with us last week, that was our fifth anniversary as a church. But we always use that as a marker to kick off a book of the Bible for the fall series. And it usually takes us all the way to the end of November when we usually start with an Advent series heading into Christmas time. And then we kick off another book of the Bible in the spring semester as well. And so this time we're walking through James, and we kind of usually kick back and forth between Old Testament and New Testament. And so we did Ruth Old Testament back in the spring, and so now we're diving into the New Testament with James. And I'm really excited about this book because in a lot of the books that we've read or have walked through so far that were more on the New Testament side have definitely been books that were either historical like when we walk through acts and we're just walking through just the expansion of the church the growth of the church the planting of the church and just the movement of the gospel as it spread out it was really kind of more narrative this is what happened and what was recorded regarding the first century expansion of the church But also some of the other books that we've walked through, like Colossians and Ephesians, uh, tended to be books that were more on the theological side. They were more on this is what you need to know and this is what you need to believe, but they weren't very heavy on the application side. And what we're going to see today as we walk or begin to walk through James is James is a book that is very, very heavy on application. Um, And you're going to see that right out of the gates that I know out of the 104 or 108 verses that are in James, 54 of them, half of them are just imperatives. Do this. Do this. Live this way. Live this out in your life. And so it's going to be very heavy on the application side of things. And I think, again, that's going to be really good for us because there's a church that tends to pride itself on being uh, very knowledgeable about Scripture and very knowledgeable about what God has commanded us in the Scriptures Uh, oftentimes it's a little harder for us or slower for us to get to the application side. We know this, we believe this, but how that actually begins to work itself out and play itself out in our lives on a daily basis is a slower process. And so I think it's gonna be really good for us to walk through this as well as seeing that our community groups are kicking off this week now, again, I'm, I'm jumping to announcements here, but they're all kicking off at the fairgrounds on Thursday. So if you're uh, interested in just really terrible food, um, and by terrible, I mean it's not good for you, but it's good for your soul, like that kind of food, um, then come Thursday night to the state fair. Uh, we have a blast getting all of our groups together. And then the following week, those groups will kind of break off into their five groups uh, that they have or exist in. Did I just go out? I mean, we've been having so many issues with our mics Am I back? All right, we'll just see what happens, okay? We'll just roll with it. Um, but the following week, we'll we'll break out into our five community groups spread throughout the city, and uh, and then we'll start diving into more discussion-based topics around the sermons. And that's really going to be an opportunity for us to as he says, practice what you preach, like be doers of the word. And so are you doing this? Are you living this out? How difficult is it to live out these implications of the gospel in our lives? How difficult is it to tame your tongue? How difficult is it to uh, minister to orphans and widows? How difficult is it to uh, not show partiality when it comes to who we interact with on a daily basis, whether that's our neighbors or our coworkers, There's so many truths within this that are playing themselves out in our current cultural climate that I think this is going to be a phenomenal book for us to not only study, but to just submit ourselves to and to surrender to as like what we've talked about. He's told us to go and make disciples and to teach them to observe all that Jesus has commanded. And this is one of those things that we are being taught to observe that Jesus commanded. And so this is going to be a good book for us to walk through. Sometimes this book has been referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. The Proverbs of the New Testament because it's so full of life application, practical wisdom, and advice for us to to just follow by. It covers an array of topics, um, handling difficult seasons of life How to have faith that is steadfast. How to use your speech as a tool to build others up rather than tearing them down. How the gospel promotes racial equality and unity rather than prohibiting it. And how prayer is a means to gain access to God's provisions for your life as well as for others around you. So again, full of so many different topics. It's not a one-topic type book. Um, It's one that, that has something for every single one of us in this room. And I think every topic is for every person in this room, but there are going to be some that that might hit you harder depending on the seasons that you're walking through. Um, and there might be others that you're like, oh, that's good, but you file it away for later. No matter where you're at in your walk with Christ right now, there's going to be something that, is, that God is using in order to pour into your mind, your heart, and your soul to make you a more faithful disciple who is steadfast and firm in the faith and grounded in the faith to be able to see Jesus on a daily basis and to become more and more like Him. And that's our goal, right? That's what we're ultimately after is to see that happen. A couple other things real quick, because today is really just a, an intro to the book. It's a breakdown of what it's going to look like. You can really break the book down into three parts. Three parts. The first part is going to be the motives for your works. The motives for your works. That's what we're going to kind of walk through um, next week as we start to dive into the first 18 verses. The first 18 verses of the book really deals with motives. Because at the end of the day, motives... Matter. Motives matter, especially in a book that has so much application of do this, do this, do this. Depending on why you do it matters. And so, for example, if all we're talking about is doing the work of Christianity in this book, if the motives are wrong, the fruit is going to be wrong. The fruit is going to be bad. It's going to be bad fruit if it's not coming from a good seed. And so the motives that we have leading into the works that we commit or the works that we do are ultimately going to be reflected based on whether or not they're coming from a place of faith or they're coming from a place of just human effort. Because human effort is never going to work. You, you can't tame your tongue based on human effort. It's got to come from faith. You can't practice um, showing equality when it comes to ethnicity from just human effort. We've already seen that the, the result of human effort when it comes to racial equality is racism. That, that's the sin aspect that comes from it when we try to do it from a human effort. And so motives matter. And I think Jesus was even talking about that a little bit as we'll get into here in a minute of how we kind of come to this place of deciding what our motives look like. One question you could even just ask right now as kind of a probing question to, to start to get at the heart of motives is why are you here today? Why are you here today? I mean, that's a question that brings the motives right to the table. Why are you here? Why why come to church? Why be a part of a church? Why come and listen to a guy talk for a few minutes? I know it's longer than that, but, but why? Why come sing songs that are about Jesus? Why do we do this? The answer to that question begins to reveal some of the motives that are underneath the surface the third part that we're going to be looking at then is the or the motives of the first one the second part is the place of works so once you get the motives kind of the foundation of faith the foundation of where we do and why we do what we do it then leads into the place of works and this enters into the domains of our life every single thing that is going to be all the imperatives within James all of the commands in James, all of the, this is what you should be doing or this is how you should be living, all of those things are going to have a domain in your life, whether it has to do with your marriage or with your family or with your kids or with your workplace or with your friendships or with your enemies or with your neighbors. Wherever you find yourself is going to be considered a place that these works can be played out. That these works can actually be conducted and achieved and and, and accomplished in what he is calling us, us to do to live the Christian life. Because I don't know if you know this or not, but your Christian life is not just about you. So like coming in here today is not just simply trying to say, how can I gain some new insight? How can I gain some new teaching? How can I gain some new truths in order to make me more like Jesus? What that is ultimately going to do is if it makes you more like Jesus, it's going to then impact how you live your life because as we see Jesus do is he is up here to serve, not to be served. And so today, again, kind of pulling in those heartstrings on the motives here, if you're here to just be served, then you're not understanding Christianity. You're not understanding what the Bible has ultimately taught us and is telling us is that we are just like Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. As we are served with the gospel, it's not just so that we would be served, but it's so that we can then take that gospel to others and serve them. And so everything that we learn, taming the tongue, for example, isn't just so that you stop cussing or stop speaking ill of other people. It's so that you can have a speech that is edifying and building others up rather than tearing them down. It's not just so that you, you don't have something filthy coming out of your mouth. It's so that you have something that is fruitful coming out of your mouth so that as others partake of that fruit, they're able to taste and see that the Lord is good and they're able to hear the gospel message and they're able to come to uh, the, the, the understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ and they're able to come into a relationship with Him. Like all of this is flowing out of us in order to be a blessing towards others. And so place of works matters because as this flows out, it's not just so that you get better. In your life, but so that you also are a blessing to others that are around you. You literally become the hands and feet of Jesus as He is continuing to serve the world that is around us. And then that leads into the third one. The place of works really leads into and just culminates in the actions or the outreach of our works. The outreach of our works. The works are really never about you, they were never about you becoming a more sanctified believer but rather about the advancement of the gospel so that it's not about us getting to the end of our life and saying, look how awesome of a believer we became. But it's look how close we became like Jesus and how many people around us were affected by us becoming like Jesus so that, as John uh, the Baptist would say, I just ultimately decreased in my life and Christ increased in my life. Like, that's our main goal is for Christ to increase and for us to decrease. And so all these do's and all these don'ts that you're going to see throughout this, bo- throughout this book are just not about my personal growth. That's a part of it. But if we continue just focusing inward on personal growth, then we're missing it. We're missing it. We're missing the purpose of why we're growing in the gospel. And we're missing the engagement with others to be a fruit and blessing and, and, and continue to expand the gospel as it goes out. So again, this book is for you, but this book is not for you. This book is for you, but it's also for everyone that is around you. And again... For us as a church, that is going to play itself out in our community groups. That's why it's so important to be connected in there. Because this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where we are going to preach the word of God. And not only do we preach the word of God, but we're going to hold each other accountable to the word of God. We're going to hold each other accountable to it. We're going to be asking questions about it. And we're going to be asking really not so much, hey, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10, how good do you think you did taming the tongue this week? Like, we're not going to be sin police as we walk through this. But what we are going to do is say, what are you struggling with in your life that is keeping you from being able to tame the tongue? Because the identity of Christ in you has the authority and power to be able to tame the tongue. And so what is it that's distracting you in your life right now? What is it that's pulling you away from the truth of who you are in Christ and therefore you're giving yourself over to an old way of your flesh or you're giving yourself over to an uneducated uh, perspective that you might have when it comes to these truths that you can apply to your life. Why are you not taming your tongue? Well, maybe it's because of X, Y, and Z. Well, let's talk about that. Let's pray about this. Let's, let's work on this. Can I reach back out to you in a couple of days to, to, to just encourage you and edify you and continue to remind you who you are in Christ? Like We're going we're gonna to work this book out. With Fear and Trembling, we're going to work this book out over the next few months um, in order for us to grow in Jesus and for him to increase and for us to decrease. And so where I want to go with this is just looking at the first verse and, uh, and, then, and then kind of just break it down a little bit on this, this person, James. Who is he? So James 1.1, you got your Bibles there, opened, uh, one verse. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So this is how the book opens. It opens by usually a type of greeting, a type of salutation where he's just introducing who he is, And then typically what they do whenever it's the authors of the book is they give the credentials for why they were able to to write or record the book. And so if you look through the 13 epistles that the Apostle Paul wrote, every single one of the epistles except for one or two of them, he literally just starts it out, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Peter does the same thing. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. And they say that because they're providing the credentials. They're providing their name card. They're... We are considered an apostle and therefore God is through us inspiring us to be able to record these things and we are going to therefore, uh, wh- whenever we, whatever we say, whatever follows next, you need to do, you need to live by, you need to follow because of the unique role that we've been given, the unique title that we've been given. James goes a little bit of a different route here. James does not consider himself an apostle. And it's very interesting, because as we'll see here in a minute, he isn't one of the twelve apostles, even though that is one of the biggest misconceptions, is that he is James within Peter, James, and John. And so the, 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 the unique three that, John, that Jesus always refers to, he's the one that always takes them on the field trips to go and pray in the mountains, or go out in the boat, or whatever it looks like, people always thought that this James was that James, because it would have made sense for that to have been the case, but this is a different James. One of my favorite characters in a movie um, is Chris Vaughn in the movie Walking Tall. It's played by uh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, not to be confused with me, Dwayne. Uh, I know we look alike, but um, not the same person. Chris Vaughn in Walking Tall is uh, a movie inspired by true events. The actual person in real life. Uh, is a sheriff in a small town in Tennessee. It's probably why I like the movie so much, being from Tennessee. But the real guy's name is Buford Pusser. Uh, and he was this crusading Tennessee sheriff uh, who was a military officer, decorated military officer, who came back to his hometown. And when he gets back to his hometown, this hometown was was built and prided on a lumber mill. And when he finds himself back in the hometown, he sees that the lumber mill has been closed down and a casino has been created Um, or built and constructed, and the townspeople have just given themselves over to gambling and drugs. And so he founds the town just in this state of being. And what he does is is he essentially just comes in and just rules the town. He comes back in and with a two-by-four piece of lumber calls the town back to justice, calls people back to an upright moral uh, way of living life. I'm not saying he didn't come through and do it in a Christian way, all right? So don't hear me saying, like, get yourself a two-by-four, and we're going to go do some work. That's not what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is this was a guy who was not going to let sin or evil or any kind of bad things pollute the town that used to be this beautiful thing. And so, and then he would just kind of rule with an iron fist. He was going to walk through and he was just going to, like, he was going to get things done. And he was going to hold people accountable to it. He was going to bring people to justice who were doing the the, the gambling and her, who were uh, doing the drug dealing and whatnot. It's a great movie. You should watch it with The Rock. Um, but anyways, based on real life events, I, I like to refer to James here as kind of the Buford poster of the New Testament. Because what we've seen in this current culture, kind of mid-century, uh, the first century, mid, mid-time of the first century syncretism has kind of played its role in the expansion of the gospel. And what I mean by that is, at this time, the Roman Empire is reaching its height, or it's reaching its peak. It was really by about 117 AD was when the Roman Empire reached its peak. So at this time, right around 50 to 60 AD, uh, the expanse of the Roman Empire, as well as the Roman road system, was getting so widespread That not only that, but travel then is able to come into into every single town, every single village. And what you start getting is this idea of syncretism, taking beliefs over here and beliefs over here and beliefs over here and merging them together, syncing them together. And what we started seeing in the church as it was dispersed out because of the suffering and because of the uh, kind of the acts movement that we saw as we walked through that, as we see the church get dispersed, syncretism starts coming into the church where it's these ideas of you can believe this and you can believe this and as long as you just profess Jesus as Lord with your mouth then you will be saved which again is a truth but it's got to be matched up with some some actions it's got to be matched up with some fruit there's got to be something that proves you are actually a disciple of Jesus Christ and so James is kind of the one who is now coming into the picture of leadership in Christianity, writing this book to the 12 tribes, and which is just his way of saying to the true church of Jesus that has gone out, I'm calling you back. You, you've, you've allowed some, some beliefs to come into. You've allowed some mispractices to come into the church and come into your belief system. And what I'm telling you is, is that's wrong. It's wrong. And you need to come back. You need to repent. You need to start living out the way of the life that Jesus has actually called us to observe. And so I like to just kind of refer to James as the Buford Pusser of the New Testament based on how he kind of comes into this play, comes into this mix. As Christianity was spreading, and again, as I kind of mentioned, this idea of simply professing Jesus as Lord Another thing is interesting here is that some people oftentimes will say that James is kind of in contradiction to the Apostle Paul. And what I mean by that is the Apostle Paul is very heavy on uh, being saved by faith alone, right? This is Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. We are not saved by works, but we are saved by the grace of God. We are saved by faith through the grace of God. James then comes in and says, are we saved by faith alone? No, we're saved by faith and works. We're saved by this idea of having faith as accompanied with works. And so oftentimes people will hold on to this, especially from a Catholic perspective or a Catholic viewpoint, of saying that faith alone cannot be what saves you. It has to be faith that is also accompanied with works. So yes, you might profess Jesus as Lord, but you also need to do these things. And if you do these things, you essentially complete your salvation of what you've already received by believing. And at the end of the day, neither one of those are true. Neither one of those are true. We are saved by faith alone, but we are not saved by a faith that is alone. We are saved by faith alone, but we are not saved by a faith that is alone. And here's what I mean by that. Here's what Jesus says, and I think Jesus is kind of alluding to this as he is talking to his disciples in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Here's what he says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. All right, so you hear Jesus there say, not everyone who just professes Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father will enter into heaven. That sounds contradictory to Paul. It's just, you're in by faith, you're not in by works. Jesus then also goes on to say in the next verse, on that day many will also come and say to me, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So this is then flipping to the other side. Those who think that works is the only way to get to heaven. He's saying there are going to be many of you who will say, I've done mighty works in your name. I've cast out demons in your name. I've planted churches in your name. And he'll say, I never knew you. I was never in relationship with you. I never saved you. And so there's this combination that we're seeing Jesus play out here. That yes, by faith in Jesus Christ alone. But if that profession of faith does not then lead to a life that reveals the fruit of the seed of salvation planted within us, then the salvation was just mere speech. It was never rooted in an identity that was buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in a newness of life. That seed was never ultimately planted. That old flesh was never put on the cross with Jesus Christ and put to death. And a new life was now birthed forward. And now that new life is living itself out in new works that is, is, is a, an ability to be able to tame the tongue, an ability to show no partiality, an ability to be able to love others and pursue them in and, and gospel sharing. Is, it's an, it's a, an ability to be able to say, I must decrease, Christ must increase. There's a way in which that works itself out. Now again, those works do not complete your faith. But they prove that the faith is genuine. They prove that the faith is real. And so what James is getting at here is he's not trying to contradict the Apostle Paul. He's being complimentary to the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul is also one who gives many commands in Scriptures, many imperatives in Scriptures, many do's. If you read through the book of Ephesians, the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians are this is what Christ has done, this is what you should believe, This is who you are in Christ and you've never done anything. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 are because of that, now go and do all of these things. Go and live out your salvation. Go and live out the work. Go and live out the roles of, of the church. Go and live out the responsibilities. Go and do the work that you've been created to do in your new walk with Jesus Christ. Go and do those things. And so it's not a contradictory, it's complementary to what the Apostle Paul has said. What he's ultimately saying here, James, is, is that Paul was right. And because Paul was right, I'm also just telling you that these are going to be the things that prove that he was right. You can't just say, I have faith. For he says, I'm going to show you my faith by my works as we'll see that here in a couple of weeks coming up. So that's why it's important to be able to see here. Now, again, one popular, again, misconception. I mentioned that James is not an apostle, James, but he is, in fact, the half-brother of Jesus. This James who wrote this book is the half-brother of Jesus. Some of you are like, I didn't even know Jesus had siblings. Um, And so Jesus actually had quite a few siblings, as we see in the Scriptures, uh, Matthew 13, 55-56, in concerning the Jesus, it says this, "...is this not the carpenter's son? Is not this, or is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Judas, who is also Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, again another brother of Jesus? And are not all his sisters with us? So we know Jesus has at least four brothers... And we know he has sisters. We don't know how many sisters he has, but we just know that Mary and Joseph were busy. And so they had children. They had lots of children. And we know that James is the oldest of Jesus' younger brothers. Jesus is the oldest. Obviously, he was the first one born. But of his brothers, James is the oldest. And the reason why we know that is because it's custom for them to record names in that order of oldest to youngest. So James here is the half-brother of Jesus and we even have that from not only the early church fathers, but Josephus, who was a Jewish historian who lived during 37 AD to 100 AD. He actually has several recorded writings about the half-brother of Jesus, James, his role in the early church, as well as his actual uh, death. And so, which we'll get to as we walk through this book, of how James can talk about trials to eventually face a trial that, um, that he found as, one that was very unjust. But this is James. He's the half-brother of Jesus. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. James, the author of this book, is the brother of Jesus. Could you imagine growing up as a sibling to Jesus? How many of you have siblings in here? All right, good. A good good majority of you have siblings in here. I just can't imagine being a sibling of someone who never messes up. Like if, if, you know, say Mary and Joseph were out, you know, running errands in Nazareth and they come home and the boys were, were playing with a round rock, throwing it in the house and they like knocked over a vase and it broke. And like Mary walks in and, and she looks at James, all right, because you always tend to look at the one who's probably the middle child in that if James, if Jesus is the oldest. And she looks at James and James just gives her this look. And says, it was Jesus. And you know Mary is just going to look at him with the look that only a mother can give a child when she knows he's lying. She's like, it can't be Jesus because he's never messed up, James. Why can't you be more like Jesus, James? Like, I can just, I I feel for James in the sense of having to grow up with a perfect brother. Like, I know I got through, I probably missed out on half of my whoopings growing up just because of the fact that I had an older brother that I could blame things on. You know, and being the younger brother, they would believe me over him most of the time. Um, still living that up to this day. But anyways, I just can't imagine that. But also there's these seasons where brothers, especially with older brothers, want to do everything their older brother does, right? Like right now, my middle child, Wyatt, is a parrot to our oldest child, Ezra. I mean, anything Ezra says, you can just give it about five seconds. Here it comes again. You're going to hear it again. The same exact thing. Anything Ezra does, why it will then go and do. If there's a jumps off this, why it's gonna run up here and jump off this? Like, that's just what he does. And so at some point, I'm just wondering if like James almost drowned trying to walk on water. Like just this idea of like, I see what my brother does, I want to be like him. But here's an interesting thing: is James did not become a believer until after the resurrection. Until after the resurrection. Like, how much would it take? for you to be convinced that your sibling is the Savior. And I think for James, it took more than Jesus never messing up. It took more than Jesus never sinning. It took more than, than Jesus being incredibly knowledgeable, especially around the Scriptures. Like it took more than him just growing up and knowing Jesus from a familial side of things to see Jesus as Savior. To see Jesus as Savior. And I really, and and the main reason why I want to drive this point home is maybe because it it relates a little bit more with me being from the South. But I know there's some people in this room who are from the South, where we grow up thinking Jesus is our older brother. Like we grow up with, with so much familial attachment to Christianity that we might see Jesus like James saw Jesus. We know of him. We know what he's capable of doing, but we don't know him as Savior. Like we, we, we have not come to the place in our life where we truly believe that he is who he says he is, that he is not just the son of my mother, but he's the actual son of God. The son of God. And so it took a lot more for James, not just having, literally sharing blood with Jesus, but it took the actual blood being spilt from Jesus for him to come to know Him and be a Savior. With the opening of this letter, James could have pulled rank by opening the letter with James, the son of the Virgin Mary, brother of none other than Jesus Christ. I grew up with him. I knew him long before he became famous. But James 1, verse 1, as well as his brother Jude, and Jude 1-1, both open their letters by calling themselves bondservants rather than the brothers of Jesus. The word in Greek is doulos, and it's an individual who willfully binds themselves to another in servitude as a slave to their master and conveys the idea of the slave's close binding ties with his master, belonging to him, obligated to, and desiring to do the master's will in a permanent relationship. In some, the will of the dulos is consumed by the will of their master. And so James doesn't open his letter with, hey guys, I am the half-brother of Jesus, which is also a unique role and relationship in this current culture because that means whatever Jesus possessed, from a hereditary secession James would receive so if this new movement that Jesus has started when Jesus dies technically it gets left to James anything that you own or possess or declare yourself to be king over gets passed down in the familial line. And so that's one of the reasons why actually James gets just shot straight up to the leadership in the early church to where he is actually not only just in, um, in equality with Peter as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, but is also calling the shots for the church in Jerusalem. He has a unique relationship that's unlike any relationship that any of the other apostles have had with Jesus because of the fact that it is a divine relationship similar to the Apostle Paul where Jesus just shows up on the road to Damascus and says, You are not one of my twelve. You are not one of my followers. You are not one of my disciples. You were not there when I appeared to the 500 and appeared to the women and appeared to the apostles and the disciples. You weren't there when I appeared to James. You weren't there for any of that. But rather, I'm here now, I'm appearing to you, and I'm making you an apostle by divine revelation. Go to Damascus and just preach the gospel. And the Apostle Paul, basically the quickest upload of Christianity you could possibly think of, in three days starts preaching the gospel to other people. Like, that is a unique relationship that he has with his Lord Jesus Christ. The apostles, the twelve have a unique relationship where they were with Jesus for three years, where he's training them, he's teaching them, hey, what I am doing for others, I want you to go and do as well. You are seeing me wash feet, I want you to go and wash feet. You are seeing me serve tables, I want you to go and serve tables. You are seeing me do these things, I want you to go and do these things. And I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who's going to empower you to be able to do this. You're going to be able to record down everything that I'm teaching you as well. And so that is in itself a unique relationship. James is unlike any one of those. James does have Jesus appear to him, as we see in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, after the resurrection. And James is mentioned in that kind of list of Jesus' appearances during those 40 days before he went back and ascended to heaven. And I think one of the reasons why James is is individualized in his appearing as Jesus kind of went through that process, was because Jesus was making sure that his church and his legacy was going to be secure. It was going to be secure on all fronts. From a legality standpoint, from a familial standpoint, from a disciple standpoint, he was covering all of his bases to guarantee that he's rigged the whole thing and the expansion of the gospel is going out so that nobody can come in at any moment and derail the expansion of the gospel, the advancement of his kingdom. So if it's going to be through his disciples who are going to be ultimately starting out with the Jews, I'm going to reach them and they're going to spread the gospel to the Jews and that's going to happen for about nine chapters in Acts. Then I need to get the gospel to the Gentiles so I'm going to recruit the Apostle Paul, I'm going to pull him in, I'm going to save him and I'm going to get the gospel to the Gentiles. But if anything goes wrong with the gospel to the Jews over here to where it falls into succession of somebody who it shouldn't then I'm going to bring in the hereditary aspect of it. I'm going to bring in the bloodline, the physical bloodline of it. And I'm going to bring in James, who's not an apostle, but he's my oldest half-brother. And he brings him in. And James literally gets I mean just placed right at the top of the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. So that we see even in Galatians, when Paul is trying to get his stamp of approval, that he is a legit apostle of Jesus Christ, that the gospel that he is preaching is the true gospel... He goes to Jerusalem, and it doesn't say that when he gets to Jerusalem that he is sitting under the apostles. It says that he is sitting under James in order for James and Peter to both give him the right hand of fellowship. So James is even giving the apostle Paul the right hand of fellowship. Yes, you're legit. You're good to go. Let's lay some hands on you. Continue going out and sharing the gospel with the apostles. James is not some light light character in scripture that can be passed over. But the thing I love most about James is he doesn't mention any of that when it comes to him providing his credentials. I mean, this guy possesses everything to be able to say, I'm at the top. I'm at the top. Therefore, listen. That's not what he does. What he does is he goes the route of bondservant. Bondservant. What I say doesn't matter. What Jesus says matters. Who I am doesn't matter. Who Jesus is matters. What I think doesn't matter. What Jesus thinks matters. That's all that matters, and that's what I want you to know. That's what James is saying here, by bringing or introducing himself as a bondservant. To James, Jesus is more than someone who shares the same earthly mother. James being literally the family of Jesus faded into the background as Jesus the Messiah was coming into the central focus of James's existence. And so that's who James is. To other Christians around there, James became known as James the Just or Righteous because of his well-known lifestyle of holiness. Again, I kind of like to think of him as James the sheriff. He then became the leader of the church in a unique way after the day of Pentecost. And has been advancing the gospel ever since through the dispersion of the 12 tribes. And we'll get to that. Because the the reality is James actually does not have a long legacy in the church. He doesn't. He, he ends up getting met with an unjust... Uh, Stoning. I mean, they, they just murder him. They kill him. And it happens to be during a time when the procurators, which were kind of like the governing agencies around the Roman Empire, uh, one died, and as they were ushering in a new one, there was a gap of three months. And there was a guy, again, this is recorded by Josephus, as well as some other uh, historians. Um, th- there was a guy who kind of stepped in as the... Um, um, Oh, gosh, intermittent, what's um, the word I'm looking for? Huh? Interim. interim, that's it. That's the word. Thanks, Grant. Uh, so he was an interim procurator, but he was not allowed to have any type of uh, telling people that they're basically going to die for anything, or charges that were brought against them. They, he didn't possess as an interim that type of power. But yet this guy by the name of Ananus stepped in, and just said, you know what, I've got about three months before the next procurator comes. And so during these three months, what I want is I want the leader of the church. I'm going to cut it off at the head. I want the leader of the church. And I want charges to be brought against him. And they literally brought the charges out. And the, and the governing uh, authorities at that time, the Sadducees and Pharisees, they said, you know what, we don't think there's enough grounds for this. And he said, nope, there's enough grounds. And he just overruled them and just gathered a mob of people together and just stoned James to death. Just stoned him to death right outside of the city. And so this is a guy, and so he was really only in the church for about 10, about 10 to 20 years before that happened. And during that time, lived such a holy life, hanging on to his brother Jesus, that they will refer to him as James the Just, James the Righteous, James the Holy. But James never sees himself in that light. And I think that's the beauty of what we're really trying to get to by the end of this book. Is that we grow in our holiness, but we don't see ourselves that way. We grow in our holiness, but we see ourselves as bondservants. We grow in holiness, but we see ourselves as, 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 as unworthy of Jesus. Unworthy of being considered on the same grounds as this. And that's my hope for us. And what I want to do to kind of close this out because I got a little bit of time is I'm just going to read it for us. I'm just going to read through the whole book of James for us because I want the word of God to sit over us so that you can see where we're going but also to challenge you to also just read it every week. All right, five chapters. Take a chapter a day, Monday through Friday. And I want you to just read it from now until November when we close it out so that you're reading it every week and letting the Word of God just saturate your life. Saturate your life. Let it get into your mind. Let it get into your heart so that it ultimately gets to your soul level. And God, through that, through His Word, is making us more like Jesus, making us more holy. So as you have it opened up there, just follow along with me. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in your Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing gold, a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, also able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? to do and fails to do it. For him it is a sin. Come now you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Father, we thank you so much for this word that you have given us. Father, we pray for the next couple of months as we break down this this letter that we just read, this letter that has been alive for 2,000 years now and that has been permeating the hearts and minds of believers and non-believers that has been bringing people into an understanding of what a relationship with you truly looks like, both from the foundation of faith as well as the fruit of that faith when it comes to works. And so, Father, my prayer for us as a church, as a body, is that as the body of Christ, this letter would help us to see that we hold on to you by faith alone but that faith also produces within us a fruitfulness of works that we are commanded by you as our master. We are commanded to live out and observe those works for the advancement of your gospel, for the glory of your name, and for the joy of our souls. And so I pray, Father, that this would be a turning point for us as a body of Christ. A turning point where, where we don't just preach with our mouths, but we practice what we preach with our lives. We practice what we preach with our lives. And all of this is only made possible through the life, the death, and the resurrection of your son Jesus. May he increase and may we decrease. May He be exalted, and may we declare ourselves bond servants to Him and Him alone. And may His will become more important to us than our own. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. As we come to this time of communion, we close each of our services out with communion. And we come to this table as a meal, as a celebration, as a remembrance, a time to think back on all that Jesus Christ has done and accomplished for us. And as I think back about this idea of faith and works and we come to this table, this table is really representing the ultimate work that Jesus did in order to purchase for us faith and salvation. It's through the work of Jesus and all of his work, every Every perfect obedience that he did for Mary and Joseph, every temptation to sin that he did not give himself over to, every perfect deed, every perfect word, every perfect thought that he committed as a perfect human being in his life was purchasing for us a perfect life that we don't have to do ourselves. And because we were imperfect, we deserved death. But Jesus also, in his work, went to the cross. And he died on the cross so that we would not have to die that death that we deserved because of our imperfect works, because of our imperfections. He died that death. He broke his body and he shed his blood. And because God, his wrath towards Jesus... His anger towards us satisfied on that cross. Jesus was able to raise three days later to a glorified state. And because of him being raised three days later to a glorified state, we too are able to be raised with Jesus. Him being the first fruits of the gospel, we now being the fruit of the gospel. As we are raised to a new life, a new life that is now able because of Jesus Christ in us and the work that he's committed and the work that he's done and the work that he's finished, we are now able to live out those works on a daily basis. Not having to muster up the strength and energy from our own human efforts to try and accomplish but mustering it from his perfect energy and strength that he was able to have and possess and do all of the work perfectly now resides within us so that we have choices to make on a daily basis. Do we give ourselves over to our former way of living or do we trust the identity that is within us? Do we trust Jesus and we exercise his power? And we toil along with it But we toil along with all of his strength as it says in Colossians. His energy that is working out within us. His power that he possesses as we see in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And he's with us always to observe what he's commanded. To keep what he's commanded. So he's with us and he possesses all the power and therefore observe. Keep his word. Live it out every single day. The only reason we're able to do that is because he broke his body and he shed his blood for us. That's what we celebrate and that's what we get filled up with spiritually when we partake of communion together as a body of Christ. We remember Jesus just like James. It's about Jesus, not me. And that's what communion is is declaring loud and proud. Remember Jesus, not you. So let's go ahead and stand together. If you do not have the elements when you grabbed them, uh, coming in you can go back to the table and grab the elements. And then we'll come back and we will partake together. Thank you for listening to a sermon from the District Church. For more information about us, please visit www.thedistrict.church. Additionally, if any of our sermons have brought encouragement to you, would you please let us know by emailing us at info at the